0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. And uh, It was a, a powerful sermon. In fact, uh, one of the older ladies in the church wanted the men who had been away to be able to hear the sermon and so she paid to have at the time cassettes of the sermon given to everyone and that's how I knew what dad had preached that's how I heard it It was sent to me I was out in California at the time dad finished this sermon on holiness with a story from his life from from his knowledge of of people and the story he finished with was the story of a of a man who had been part of his and my mother's class at Wheaton College in the 1930s up until 1940 or 41 they graduated. Those years were years at that college of ferment and power and that much of what we know as the evangelical world today was the product of those years at that school. Billy Graham was part of that class. I could name people after people who were were there then. But Dad told the story of a man who had been a a successful man, both in college and in the years after. He had done well in school. He had gone on, and he had become sort of a titan of industry. I can't remember, but uh, it was a major, major company that he had founded and and been the head of. He had married a classmate, a woman in the class with Mud and Dad. And and at some point in the pursuit of life, He and his initial inclinations, his initial commitments became separated. And at some point in in the early years of their marriage, their 30s I believe, he left her and lived a life that was a life of money and, and being well known and but a A life of many women and and then in his 60s shortly before dad preached this sermon dad knew the story this man for some reason was led to consider the course he had gone down and in the midst of considering it he thought back on the wife he had left decades before and the life he had led led and lived since then. And he, with remorse, said, I did wrong. And he contacted her, Dad said, and said, I made a mistake. I sinned. Will you have me back? She said to him, I think it was 30 years ago, I took off my wedding ring, I still have it. I'll put it back on. And they lived together for several years as man and wife, resuming their marriage, which had not been apparently broken by divorce. They had been broken by adultery. And, and then she died. My dad summed up that story not by saying, what a glorious God we have, how wonderful, but I I can still hear his voice from the tape saying, what a waste, what a waste. And that's the reality. To have lived all those years and to have scorned the gift God had given him. To have spent those years in the pursuit of money and in the pursuit of fame and significance in the world, and only at the very end to come back to his wife And to return to God what a waste I want to speak to you from the Word of God this morning about divorce knowing that many of us are divorced 33% of American adults are divorced today 32% of American evangelical adults are divorced have been through a divorce we're no different than the culture and there are many who are here who are divorced I want to speak this morning the word of God without favor, without fear about divorce because I'm convinced my dad was right in thinking that the greatest blights in the American church in his lifetime were the acceptance of divorce and the rejection of the Sabbath. We'll leave the Sabbath for another day. But today... We have, in the Word of God, the teaching of Jesus on divorce. And I hope that I don't offend you. Actually, I hope that the Word of God doesn't offend you and that I'm true to the Word of God. I hope you listen and pay attention. There is no better thing for our children and our lives than to have the security of a covenant that will not be broken. Such is the covenant of God. It cannot be broken. Such is the promise of God in Jesus Christ, the Lord of our covenant. And such should be the character of our homes. The most frightening thing my father ever said to me, was said to me when I was 12 or so, when he looked at, my younger brother and me after a disagreement and a fight with my mother, and they'd had some fights in those years. I think it was the years of that seminar that my wife was gonna do with some of you ladies, all right? Few of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, it seemed like the home suddenly became a battleground for a while. It eased up. But at one point in the midst of those battles, (laughs) at one point, my father looked over at Nathan and me and said you know we'll never get a divorce don't you that was (laughs) when I was growing up my mother wanted to uh, have a sandbox in our backyard and my mother wanted it to be a real sandbox and so she went and she bought I think Uh, at least a dozen railroad ties. And she brought marine grade plywood. And she made my brothers and me dig a big pit in the backyard at the bottom of which she laid the marine grade plywood in a rectangular shape. And, And then on the sides of that pit she had us put... The railroad ties and there were spikes through them to hold them together and then we backfilled in around it and through that process we had we had a real a real sandbox and uh, then she had sand fill it and you know that sandbox was used by by well over decades that sandbox lasted for decades why? Because it had a real perimeter, and there was safety within it, it wasn't mixed with the dirt it wasn't it wasn't open to being spread around, it had solid sides, solid constraints that that kept the sand in and the dirt out. This should be your marriage for your home, for your children, for the sake of your life with God, a solid, secure, protected place where the world will not get in and intermingle, where you will not go outside. And within the realm of that sandbox, you can do all sorts of things because you have solid walls. You can throw the sand around, you can build a sand castle, you can do all sorts of things. You can fight in the sandbox. But with the sides that are secure, the sand is kept in, and it's safe. This is marriage. It is the security of a fence within which you are protected, within which you can act with with a certain degree of freedom, a certain degree of confidence. You can fight within that fence because you know that that fence is there. You can live within that fence. This is the covenant of marriage. Now we're following Christ on his final trip to Jerusalem. And in these verses, crowds are following him, but the Pharisees make their way somehow to the front. And they want to test Jesus with a question, but it's a test that becomes a test of them rather than of him. And it's a test of you and me. We're told that this question about divorce is a test, we don't know the nature of the test. We don't really know what they were seeking from him. We know that there was a division among the Pharisees over divorce. One school of rabbis taught divorce was hated by God and allowable only for sexual sin, adultery, and things tantamount to it. Another school was more liberal, allowing men to divorce their wives. Their famous example was, if she displeased you even by burning the dinner, you were allowed to divorce her. We aren't told which side these Pharisees represent. The text doesn't make clear what the trap was for Christ. Maybe they just want to know what he'd teach. Maybe they want to know if he's on their side. It's a test to see if he's with them or against them. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus uses the opportunity that's given by these Pharisees coming to him to teach on marriage and divorce. Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. And remember he does so as Creator. Is the God who made us male and female, the God who told Moses by his spirit when Moses was writing the books of the Pentateuch, and in particular Genesis, that he had made Eve out of Adam, taking her out of his flesh, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word of God is teaching on his word. He's teaching on marriage, his ordinance. He's teaching on this covenant of marriage, which he enacts, which is a picture of his relationship to the church. He is the Lord of this teaching. Go against his word here. Say, well, you know, I don't really want to listen to this particular teaching of Christ, and you are going to the very heart of his claims and his character, and you are opposing it. So don't let the existence of liberal and conservative schools of thought mislead you. There will be people who will say, well, divorce is okay, and there will be people who will say that divorce is never, ever permitted. That's not our point this morning. Divorce, whether you are from the school of Hillel or Shammai, those two rabbis, divorce in either of those schools and in any church and in any marriage is a sign of failure. Failure is stamped with, with the stamp of, of totality by divorce. It is the recognition that there has been failure, no less than bankruptcy. Declaration of writ of bankruptcy is a declaration that something has failed. Divorce, the writ of divorce... The public decree of divorce, published in the paper, is a writ of failure. A fundamental failure. So, we have here Jesus, the creator of the universe, the God of creation, the one who made us male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife, speaking about marriage, and what he says of its sacredness in the eyes of God and the intensity of divine expectation surrounding the marital covenant is more than anyone on this occasion anticipates and probably more than you believe. Pharisees, liberal or conservative, American Christians, evangelical or liberal, are alike in saying, ah, he doesn't really mean that. Remember, our statistics are no different than the world's. His disciples are shocked, the Pharisees are shocked, everyone is shocked and startled by what he demands. So we must begin by understanding what divorce is, what Jesus says about divorce, okay? Jesus teaches something about marriage and divorce here that you may not be aware of. Probably most of you are, but to some of you this may be new. He's saying nothing new, nothing revolutionary, nothing that should not have been obvious to everyone, But it was a truth that had been lost sight of in his day and it has been lost sight of in our own. The truth that Jesus is teaching is that marriage is precious to God. Marriage is glorious. Marriage is the means by which man is particularly in the image of God having the ability through marriage to bear fruit that is an eternal being. Distinct from all other animals in this way. God has a share in our marriages. He is co-owner of the marital union. He wants the fruit of that union as his own. He claims your children as his own. It's kind of like I think God is looking on as a grandfather, which I, by God's goodness, am today with 14 grandchildren. Every grandson, every granddaughter, I feel like they're mine in some way. You know, they're my kids. I I absolutely love them. They're not mine, they belong to my children, but they're mine. And Cheryl feels the same way as a grandmother. Imagine God who created you, who knew you, who put you together, and his feeling towards your children. God is invested in your marriage. God has given you something. It is a talent. It is a gift. And he seeks things from you in this. There's no place on earth where you're you're being given something by God and expected to produce a return is more visceral and real than in your marriage. In the Old Testament, Malachi writes this important Old Testament statement of God's view of marriage and divorce. He's speaking to the people of Israel, the prophet is, and he's, he's telling them why God is against them. He says, this second thing you do, the second thing against God, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, you go to God and you bring things to him and you're weeping and you're upset because he doesn't seem to hear you. But you say, why does he not hear us? Jesus, or Malachi, answers with God's return to their question. Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Every covenant that is made, marriage is a covenant. Every covenant, we'll speak more about a covenant in a moment, but every covenant calls God the witness. God is involved. God is called to witness and he says the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one God seeking godly offspring why did God make you one Because he wants godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God is not a bystander in marriages. He has purposes, his own purposes in bringing you and your spouse together in bringing man and woman together in the covenant of marriage and his great purpose is that you raise children who will love him and obey him that is the pinnacle of your purpose but it's not just children of the flesh he seeks its children who love him godly offspring and godly offspring are not just the natural union a result of a physical union of marriage they require a spiritual union, which is why Malachi says in that passage, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And so it's not wrong to say that the covenant is a tripartite covenant. Three parties. The spirit who is involved, the husband, the wife. There is a portion of the spirit of God in our marriage God hates divorce Malachi says the last sentence of what God says about divorce through Malachi can also be translated for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord God of Israel covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts it's a rather strange construction in the Hebrew and that's a very possible rendition so it is not divorce itself that God hates But the violence, the unfaithfulness, the sin that leads to and results from and surrounds divorce. Divorce itself in God's view and his law is simply recognition of the evil end of a marriage that has already been abrogated. a, A covenant that has already been broken. It is the recognition of a broken covenant. That is what divorce is in God's view. It does exist. It is permitted in those circumstances. But when it becomes the justification for the breaking of that covenant, it is absolutely illicit. To understand the purpose of divorce, we must understand a covenant, the basic biblical principle behind marriage, the form surrounding the one flesh union that many of us are a part of. A covenant is a solemn contract. Solemn because it's enacted by two parties and sealed by blood. Blood is required in a covenant. Every covenant, Hebrew says, is marked by blood. It is uniformly a part of the enactment of a covenant that is sealed by blood. The blood at the outset of a covenant is the blood of an animal. And that blood of the animal is shed to seal and solemnize the covenant. Implicit in the shedding of that blood is the statement, so be it done to me if I fail to uphold my part, my commitment in this covenant. If a covenant is broken... Then the blood of that animal that was shed at the outset of the covenant signals the fate that the breaker of the covenant has called down on himself under the sight of heaven with God as witness to the covenant, calling on God at the outset of the covenant to do that to him if he breaks it. So in the garden, God made a covenant with Adam guaranteeing life and joy upon the keeping of that covenant. The requirement for man being that he obey God, specifically with one law, that he not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By breaking the covenant, the demand of the covenant was that Adam die, which Christ did in our place. That covenant is fulfilled. Its stipulations Its punishment was laid on Christ, and so the Bible speaks of Jesus' blood, the blood that was shed as the blood of the eternal covenant. Covenants with God as witness are eternal. Marriage involves the two parts of the covenant. Certain commitments, promises, the vows of the wedding, and the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood in the Bible is clearly understood to be the physical union of the man and the woman. The coming together of a man with his virgin bride. God himself is witness to the covenant. He places his own spirit at the center of that union. So that covenant is a deep and abiding promise And breaking it deserves death, demands the shedding of blood. There is only one way to break that covenant, to violate that bond, to end it. And the fact of a sheet of paper saying, over, divorced, does not accomplish the breaking of the covenant. The covenant of marriage is only abrogated, ended by the sundering, the breaking of the one flesh union by one person through sexual impurity of a serious nature, breaking the covenant by rupturing the one flesh union. And when this takes place, when the covenant is broken by the commission of adultery, or a sin of a sexual nature that's tantamount to adultery, and we'll come to that in a moment, then a writ of divorce only acknowledges what has already taken place in fact. That is the purpose of divorce, to acknowledge that the covenant has been broken and that it's over. And at times, therefore, Jesus teaches here, divorce is permitted, And in fact, at times, divorce is even necessary. When the breaking of the covenant of marriage is by someone who perpetrates sexual sin against a member of his own family, in cases of incest, then you'd better believe it is the duty of the wife to seek a divorce. The protection of the children is of more importance than the pharisaical ability to claim I did not divorce. At times, there may be true repentance, but it's rare. And the marriage may be able to go on. But let me be very honest in saying, there are times when there is no answer but divorce because of the, the vile nature of the sins that ended the marriage. Remember that in the Old Testament, the penalty for the kinds of sin that I'm talking about that would require divorce was death. There was no need to worry about these sins and a divorce eventuating from them because the penalty was already clear. Adultery, incest, all these forms of sin were were punished by death. Now, some would say that Jesus here only permits divorce in the case of actual physical adultery, physical union involving one married person with another person, a person that they are not married to. But when Jesus says here that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, he uses a general Greek term, porneia, which refers to a vast variety of sexual sins. And he says, whenever someone divorces his wife, except for immorality, porneia, and marries another woman, he commits adultery. And that word in Greek is moikao. So what he says is, if you divorce your wife, except for there being sexual immorality in her, and you marry another woman, You commit adultery. And so the difference is is very clear. You commit adultery unless you you have written a divorce because of sexual sin. So it is not simply adultery. Jesus could have said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. But he uses this more general term. Am I making sense here? Making very clear that there are sins that are spiritually equivalent of adultery for which divorce is permitted. It's the only way, the reason that Jesus uses these two separate and distinct terms. One, a more general one, and then the more specific one says that if you marry a woman, except for a divorce, for these circumstances, you commit adultery. Paul adds to this one condition given by Christ in 1 Corinthians by saying that if a married individual is left by an unbelieving spouse who is not willing to live with the Christian, the believing spouse is free. And it's been the the classic understanding of the church that free means free, not just to separate, which even Jesus' permission, Jesus' statement would allow, but free to remarry. So what ends a marriage? Certainly not a divorce. Because if you get a divorce, but there's been no sexual sin and then you remarry, That is adultery, Jesus says. Now, if the marriage does not exist, it couldn't be adultery. But Jesus says God doesn't recognize that writ of divorce. That covenant still stands. It doesn't matter whether you've gone to court and said, I'm over, over, over. Divorce does not end a marriage. The sin surrounding and producing an end to the one flesh union must be the breaking of the one flesh union marriage stands in the eyes of god until that breakage occurs and it can occur before the writ of divorce or it can occur afterwards but divorce simply recognizes that sin in god's eyes that sin is the breaking of the marital bond so the disciples they hear what jesus is saying they understand it He's saying that marriage ends only by acts of adultery. He's saying, you know, Moses permitted you to do this, but I say no. Don't think that by Jesus saying Moses permitted you, he's drawing a distinction between the law of Moses and the commands of God. It's very clear that Moses permitted it under inspiration from God. God permitted this. Jesus often speaks of the law of Moses. It's not that it's the law of Moses. It came through Moses. It's the law of God. So Jesus says that God permitted you that. But he's saying to them, today I say to you, that this was not the way it was from the beginning. This is not the way it should have been. And I'm saying to you, except for adultery, you are not allowed to divorce. Now his disciples, in a telling comment, say back to Jesus, well, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry and there are several ways to view this, this statement by the disciples. One is to view it as, an, as evidence of disdain for marriage. That it would be better never to marry than to be forever forbidden, forbidden to divorce. And it suggests perhaps an immense uh, male privilege, desire. You know, well, I've got to be able to get out of this thing. Or there's another alternative. And that second alternative is it suggests an immense fear of divorce or of adultery, excuse me, of the sin of adultery, of committing that sin. At times I tell you what Calvin says and usually I only say it when I disagree with him. And on this point he says these men are so selfish they think it's, not, it's hard on them to be married to a woman, never thinking that it's hard on women to be married to certain men. <laughs> and... Uh, That is true and there is a certain degree of of wickedness, but it goes both ways in marriage. It's not as though it's all men. I've been a pastor long enough to know otherwise. No, I don't don't agree with this idea that they have a disdain for marriage, that they don't value their wives, that they don't wanna get married one day if they're single. Peter we know is married, we don't know about the others. I don't think this is disdain for the institution or male disdain for women. I think the disciples are so fearful of committing adultery that they are startled and amazed that divorce does not keep you from committing adultery. That divorce is not an open sesame from the the penitentiary of adultery. Remember, in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death for both perpetrators such a serious sin that when God said to his people you are an evil wicked people he called them not idolaters which they were they worshiped idols he didn't call them murderers which they did they murdered their children he said you are an adulterous people that was the deepest sin that he could say you are an adulterous people Over and over in the Old Testament, God calls his people adulterous because they do not remain faithful to him. Remember in the Old Testament, the horror of even the Philistine king Abimelech, when he took Abraham's wife Sarah to be his wife, brought her into his house, did not know her, but did not realize that she was married to Abraham and then learned that she was, he sent her back laden with gifts as a public assurance to the whole world that there had been no adultery and that he and she were innocent. We live in an adulterous age. We live in an age in which people laugh at Kanye West for saying, don't dress that way to his wife, please. I want you for me. He's mocked for it. We don't understand the wickedness of adultery. We haven't come to hate it. These disciples hate adultery. They don't want to be adulterers. And so they're saying, whoa, who can foresee the future? Man, maybe I should never marry. Jesus responds to their statement that it's a hard saying and only some can handle it to suggest it's better not to marry as they just did. He says, well, some of us are physically incapable of marriage because we're eunuchs from birth. We're not capable of the marital act. Some are made that way by men, and a few are specifically spiritually called to celibacy and equipped by God for that life, but that marriage is God's good gift to men and women. Don't speak against it. celibacy the the ability to live a continent life as they call it a life without having to have the intimacy and sex of marriage is a gift from the spirit the Bible makes clear the Bible makes clear that it is not a greater gift than marriage in fact marriage is the design of God for man it is the greater gift than celibacy some have the gift of celibacy but marriage is a greater gift God made us to do this. So why did Moses and God through Moses? Why did Moses permit divorce outside of adultery in the law? Jesus makes it clear. Why does God in the Old Testament permit divorce outside of adultery? And why do you divorce? What is it? Jesus makes it clear. It's because of the hardness of your heart. God permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. Isn't hardness of heart always the cause of the ending of a marriage? Of divorce? Of adultery? Our marriages are troubled and our marriages end because of the hardness of our hearts. Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. If your marriage is in difficulty, you are hard of heart. Or your spouse is, but most likely both of you. What is this hardness of heart Jesus speaks of? Well, it's clear it's not the hardness of divorce, because divorce is the result of this hardness. It precedes the divorce. It's a product of this hardness. It's not itself the hardness. Divorce is evidence of a prior hardness of heart. It's the final proof of the disease. It's the death certificate of that disease. What is hardness of heart then? Now The word Jesus uses here is the Greek word sclerocardia. You know sclero from sclerotic, which means to get hard. Sclerotic arteries are hardened arteries. Cardia is from our word, from which we get our word cardiac. Hardness of heart. Simple hardness of heart. Now, while hardness can certainly be visible in the back and forth of a marriage, in our treatment of each other, husband and wife, back and forth, that's not the meaning Jesus uses the term sclerocardia to mean. When this term is found in the Bible, and especially in the use of Christ, it invariably refers to a hardness of heart that makes us not listen to God. We don't listen to God. Our hearts are hard. It's a refusal to listen and believe God. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and sclerocardia, hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Divorce results from hardness of heart, failure to believe God. We stop believing God about marriage, we stop believing his word, and we move inevitably towards divorce. So where is your heart hard? And I want to end with three areas where your heart may be hardening right now, and you need to listen to God. First, God says that marriage is a one-flesh union. So if you and your wife, you and your husband, become one flesh and you rip that apart, what do you do? You kill something. You are a murderer. You rip it apart. Divorce and the adultery that produces a divorce is the ending of a life. The killing of something God says is one. Ripping it apart. Divorce kills a living thing. The sexual sin that produces divorce is the murder of something precious to God out of which he's seeking something even more precious which is children who will love him. You rip it apart and you kill it. We should hate divorce. We should hate it and the sins that produce it. And the way to hate it is to accept the word of God. God says it's a one flesh union. It is one flesh. Second thing that you don't really believe is that God has put his spirit into that union with a portion of his spirit in their union, the Bible says. That God is co-witness with you, involved with you, Committed together with you to this marriage. That God has a share in this union, that He is there, which of course means that no matter how dark it appears, there's hope. When God is in something, it's never hopeless. You rip that union apart by sexual sin, and you've killed it, and the Holy Spirit is no longer there. But as long as you are faithful, the Holy Spirit is there, and there can be greatness and glory. Stop thinking that there's no hope. Hope ends when the marriage ends by adultery. Otherwise, there's hope. Even with adultery, there can be hope. I can tell you stories about this that are glorious, but it involves forgiveness and the restoration of something that was killed and came back to life. Third, remember that Scripture says, Jesus says, God has joined them together. Some of you, no doubt, are thinking, well, I'm married, but I married in sin, and really my my marriage should not have taken place. And and so I want to ask you to think through your life and how many of the great and chief accomplishments of your life were conceived without sin? How many of the things you did did you do perfectly? So that you can say, this is, this is virginal. It's, it's, it's without the stain of sin. Of course you married in sin. The reality is that you're using the sin that, that began your marriage as an excuse for continued sin in your marriage. And that's just evil. It may well be that you married the woman that you shouldn't have at some point. But what does the Bible say? It says, God put you together. Is God incapable of using sin to exalt his name? Can you think in the Old Testament of a marriage that was evil and God brought good from it? Of course you can. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you know that it was conceived in adultery. That it led to the murder of the husband, And Solomon was born of it, beloved of God, the Father, in the line of Jesus. Stop making excuses for your hardness of heart. Stop it. Go to God for your marriage. Pray together as a couple. The Holy Spirit is in you and he is with you when you pray together for your marriage. You will not believe how good it can be. I've spoken of this before, but you just don't know how wonderful it can be if you simply start listening to God and stop hardening your heart. Marriage is the most wonderful gift, the most beautiful thing, the best reflection of Christ and his bride that we have on earth. We look on it with scorn and say, it would be better not to be married. What wickedness, what evil. It's my prayer, it's my desire that this church never sees adultery, never sees divorce, never, really. Let's stand as a light in this age by the purity and glory of our marriages so that the world will say look at us and say surely God is in her midst you've seen marriages like this haven't you nothing testifies to the power of God more than a wonderful marriage those of you who have been granted the gift of celibacy it's not a curse it is a gift God has equipped you Stand for him, be fruitful for him, don't resent that gift. Knowledge that God has given you that gift, just as he's given the marriages of the church their marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will unharden our hearts and cause our homes to acknowledge the reality of your presence in our midst. And to know the power that comes from that acknowledgement to be filled with joy and glory so that adultery and divorce are impossible here. Surround us by your covenant we pray in Jesus' name, amen.